Today is Friday. Friday, as you know, from the book of Genesis, was the day on which God made man. You also know that it was on this same day, Friday, that the Son of God mounted the gibbet of the cross for us men and for our salvation. Meditating upon the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ has changed sinners into saints. Ignatius of Loyola wrote in his spiritual exercises, Christ died for me. What have I ever done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? We know that on that first Good Friday, Pontius Pilate, having interrogated our divine master, concluded that he was innocent of any charge laid against him. Nevertheless, he was too cowardly to execute his will, fearing that the Sanhedrin and the chief priest would send to the emperor in Capri an evil report. He feared also that he would lose his position as governor and probably never be appointed to any important Roman post anywhere in the world. And so the first thing he did was to play for time. He sent our Lord with a delegation to Herod. And Herod there treated our Lord contemptuously. And Christ, showing his disdain, never uttered a single word in reply. When he was escorted back to Pilate, Pilate recalled that he had the privilege at this time of the year, the Passover, to release a prisoner which the Jewish people requested. He becomes, in the Gospels, an advocate for Christ. But the high priests are too crafty for him. They spread the word through the crowds that the people should clamor for Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a seditionist who during a riot murdered a man. Christ, the Son of God, the creator of all the world, is rejected for a murderer. Jesus wishes to suffer. He wishes to suffer for me. He wishes to suffer for my sins. Easily could he overcome all of his adversaries. He does not wish to do so. Consequently, I must make an effort to grow sad and to lament. 
Pilate has one last stratagem. He orders that Christ the prisoner be scourged. Does this make sense? It makes no sense if we are looking for justice. But Pilate is interested in something else. He wants the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and as many of the other Jews as possible to agree with him. And so he thinks that if they see our divine master in such a bloody condition as a result of the scourging, their hard hearts will be melted. And so he orders our Lord to be sent to the garrison. Now the men who occupied that garrison in Palestine were recruits from Syria. They hated the Jewish people, they hated their time in Palestine, and they would take out on our Lord all of the pent-up fury, all of the anger and hatred, frustration, that they had suffered from their time in Palestine. There is a small work, originally written in French, translated into English, which has gone through many publications. It is called Doctor on Calvary. This little opusculum very brief work gives us a meditation into the sufferings of our divine Savior. For the man who wrote it was not only a medical doctor, but he was one skilled in Latin and Greek, and who for the task investigated Roman procedures regarding crucifixion. Pierre Barbet maintains that our Lord was scourged having his hands fastened above his head to a pillar. The clothes were stripped from him. His front was flush against that pillar. This Barbet deduces from the scourge wounds. He tells us that the instrument used was called the flagellum horribile, the horrible scourge, the horrible whip. This was a wooden handle attached to which were two leather thongs embedded in each of the thongs were round pieces of stone and round pieces of bone. The Jews, as you know, had a law against scourging a man more than 40 stripes. And to make sure, doubly sure, the executioners stopped at 39. But our Lord was scourged, not on the Jewish law, but on the Roman law.
And Barbet, having analyzed the shroud at Turin, comes to conclusion that there were more than 120 stripes on the back of our Lord's neck, on the back of our Lord, from the nape of the neck to below the buttocks. He points out that there were two executions of unequal height, standing on either side behind the one scourged. The first welts raised red marks on the back of our Lord. And then the skin adhered to the whip. Some of it was just stripped from the back. Deep furrows of blood appeared. Because of the stone and the bone, there were deep gashes on our Lord's back. We must consider further that on the night he was apprehended in the garden, our divine Savior, as St. Luke tells us, sweated blood. Barbet points out that this is a rare condition, but it is known to have happened in medical science to other people. It occurs, he says, when the victim has suffered some debility and he is under a very strong, powerful emotion of fear. What happens is the capillaries throughout his body, and there are millions of them, release blood into the sweat glands. And these drop, as St. Luke's mentioned in his gospel, onto the ground like beads of blood. The result is a soreness, a tenderness throughout the entire body. That was the state of our Lord when he went before those who scourged him. Jesus wished to suffer. He wished to suffer for my sins. He hid his divinity. Every blow makes our Lord shudder involuntarily. Never once does he utter a cry of pain. It is only because of the exhaustion of the executioners that the scourging comes to an end. There is beneath our Lord's feet a pool of blood. The soldiers decide that they will have sadistic fun. Christ has claimed to be a king not a king of this world, but a king. And every king needs a crown. And so they weave for him 
Not a circlet, according to Barbet. Usually in our paintings, in our crucifixes, we see the circle crown. But Barbet concludes that the crown was rather a cap that was pressed deep into the skull of Christ. The soldiers mocked him. First of all, coming before him, they genuflected. And then taking a reed, which served as a scepter, they hit him across the head, driving deeper into his skull the crown of thorns. Jesus wishes to suffer. He wishes to suffer for me. He wishes to suffer for my sins. He could easily overcome all of his adversaries. He does not wish to do so. I must make an effort, therefore, to grow sad and to lament. They put on our Lord's clothes, escort him back to Pontius Pilate at Los Pitos. We can picture him, the blood streaming down his cheeks, onto his garments, and to the pavement below. His figure shaking involuntarily. His face hidden with sweat, spittle, and blood. The words of Isaiah, chapter 53, come to mind. Lo, we have seen him, and there is no beauty in him, nor comeliness. He is despised and the most abject of man, a man of sorrows and quite acquainted with infirmity. His countenance is as it were hidden, whereupon we esteemed him not. Yet he is the beautiful one above all the sons of men, for by his bruises we are healed. Pontius Pilate addresses his audience, saying in Latin, Ecce homo, behold the man. If he thinks that the hard hearts of the Jews, of their high priest and Sanhedrin, are melted, he is grossly mistaken. For they cry out in unison, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Pilate realizes their hypocrisy, but also his powerlessness. He calls for water, a universal symbol that he has nothing further to do with this case. He writes out, the sentence, Jesus Nazarenus, Rex Judeorum. This Latin inscription was also written in Greek and in Hebrew. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. When the Jews protest, telling Pilate he should have written, he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate gets his petty revenge. Quod scripsi scripsi. 
What I have written, I have written. Barbet says that a page of the court carried the sentence before the crucified. And that the crucified carried not the entire cross, but rather the horizontal piece, known in Latin as the patibulum, the upright piece Barbet discovered from his research was ordinarily implanted at the site of crucifixion. That piece, known in Latin as the stirpes. Barbet says that when he was a young man, he used to carry, during the summertime, cross ties on a railroad. These were rough, unplaned pieces of wood weighing up to 120 pounds. He concludes that that was the kind of thing our Lord carried. The piece of wood was unplaned. Christ's back was a welter of blood. He could find no resting place for the patibulum. Jesus wished to suffer. He wished to suffer for me. He wished to suffer for my sins. St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that our Lord suffered in his body and in his soul. He suffered for men and he suffered from women. The Jewish people men and women rejected the one who came for their salvation. The last gospel read at every mass reminds us he came unto his own and his own received him not. Jesus wished to suffer, to suffer for me, to suffer for my sin. The crowds jeered. According to tradition, our Lord, the Son of God, fell three times carrying the cross. When he came to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, he was stripped of his garments. That in itself was an unbearable agony. Remember, he sweat blood. He was scourged more than 120 stripes. His back is one raw wound. The clothes that have been put upon him have dried those wounds into his skin. And now, they are torn from him, opening afresh those wounds. Jesus wishes to suffer. He hides his divinity. He suffers for me and for my sins. 
The Roman executioners pinion him. A spike is selected, and it's driven, not through the palm of the hand, as it is depicted in many of our paintings and crucifixions, but as is revealed by the Shroud of Turin through the wrist cavity. Barbet tells us that he himself attempted experiments with cadavers to see whether or not nails driven through the palms of the hands could support a body. He found they could not. But if the nails were driven through the cavity in the wrist, the body could be supported. When that nail was driven through, the median nerve, which controlled the thumb, was frayed, much the same as a guitar string that is put over a fret. It was not severed, but frayed. And every time there was a movement of our Lord on the cross, there was a further explosion to his brain. Jesus wishes to suffer, to suffer for me, to suffer for my sins. He was raised up, looked out at the crowds, saw them jeering at him, and yet he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These words are for our benefit. Just as Christ forgave all who injured him, we who are members of Christ's mystical body have been instructed by our heavenly founder that we too must forgive one another. Looking out at that crowd, he can hear their jeers. He can see the snarls on their faces. And we are reminded of the words of Thomas Aquinas, that he suffered in all of his senses. He suffered in his sight. He suffered through his hearing. He suffered through the sense of smell, the sense of taste, and feeling. It is obvious that he feels. He suffers through the sense of smell because the place where he was executed was outside of the city, near the place where the garbage was burned. And finally, we know from St. John that our Lord cried out, I thirst. Barbet claims that the worst suffering of those who were crucified was the suffering of thirst. He says it was far worse than that suffered by men who were shipwrecked and spend more than a day and a night at sea. Jesus wished to suffer. He wished to suffer for me. He wished to suffer 
for my sins. I must make an effort to grow sad and to lament. Because our Lord was pinioned to the cross, his body tended to sink. If he wanted to get a breath, he had to put his weight upon his feet. And as he did so, he opened up his wounds, suffered afresh. His arms were spread out for three hours. And as a result, there were all kinds of pains, of cramps in his thighs, his calves, the arms themselves. Jesus wished to suffer. He hid his divinity. He suffers for me. He suffers for my sins. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He turned to the good thief who had come to his defense. There is instruction here. If we are to save our souls, we must have faith and we must have charity. The good thief defended our Lord against the attack of the evil one. For the bad thief said, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and save us. At this, the good thief rebuked him. Do you not fear God now that we are face to face with death? We indeed suffer the just rewards for our evil deeds, but this man has done no wrong. And then he says, words of faith, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The good thief never saw our Lord perform a miracle, but he did see the extraordinary meekness and dignity of our crucified Savior. And so he expresses his belief in him. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Christ, who cannot be overcome in generosity, said to him, This day you will be with me in paradise. St. John was the only one, the only one of the apostles who was present on Calvary. And he tells us that our Lord spoke to his mother. And the words he spoke were these, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It's unfortunate that we live in this country with many Christians who deny the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Lady. But if you meditate on what St. John says, you have evidence that Our Lady, contrary to the teaching of so many Protestants, 
the ancient teaching of Helvetius, who was condemned by St. Jerome. Our Lord did not, or rather Our Lady, did not have other children besides our Lord. The only child of Mary is Jesus. If our Lord had brothers and sisters, how could he say to St. John, Behold your mother? He would be contradicting the natural rights of children toward their parents. He says, Woman, behold your son. He was not merely providing for Our Lady. He was providing for us. The Blessed Lady is the mother of Christ's physical body. And she is the mother of his mystical body. You and I, by baptism, are made one with Christ. St. Augustine, writing more than 1,500 years ago, pointed this out. He said, God became man, that man might become God. These words seem hyperbolic, but you and I have been raised to a supernatural state. We will be able, if we persevere in sanctifying grace, to enjoy the beatific vision, something that God himself alone is, finds natural. It is supernatural for us. And so, St. Augustine said, God became man, that man might become God. And incidentally, Every morning when the priest celebrates Mass, he pours a drop of water into the chalice to mingle with the wine. And he says words to this effect. That God has marvelously made mankind, but still more marvelously restored it. And as this drop of water is poured into the chalice and becomes one with the wine, so may we also become one with Christ Jesus. God became man that man might become God. How did God become man? Through the Blessed Lady. Did he need Mary to be man? Yes. He did not need Mary to be God because he is God from all eternity. But he did need Mary in order that he might be a man. Next, Augustine asks, and how will man become God? In the same way that God became a man, through the Virgin Mary. We do not need Mary to be men. We have inherited our human nature from our parents. But we do need Mary, that Jesus Christ, her son, may be formed in each and every one of us. Our Lord, for three hours, suffered on the cross. His external torments are obvious. But at one point, he cries out these mysterious words, Eli, Eli, lama samatani, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? These words come from Psalm 21, a marvelous prophecy of the passion of our Lord. Therein you will find, they divided my garments among them, and upon my vesture they cast light. They have dug my hands and my feet with the nails. I can number all of my bones. Not a bone of him will you break. Jesus finally, at three o'clock, cries out, It is finished. Unto your hands I commend my spirit. He cries out in a loud voice, indicating that he lays down his life when he wants it. He does not succumb to the will of man. Christ died for me. What have I ever done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? Finally, St. John, remember, was the only one of the apostles present on Calvary. He tells us that the Jewish high priest petitioned Pontius Pilate that the bodies be removed from the cross, otherwise they would contaminate the Holy Passover. And so, when the executioners came to the thieves on either side of our Lord, they broke their legs. Because they broke the legs of the thieves, these men could not mount up the gibbet of the cross and gain a breath. They died of asphyxiation. But when they came to Christ, they saw that he was already dead. Yet inexplicably, the centurion opened the side of our Lord. The same word is used for the ark of Noah. There was an opening so that the animals could enter into that ark and be saved. The opening in Christ's sight makes it possible for the grace of the Sacred Heart of Jesus to come to each and every one of us. And this grace is represented by the blood and the water. They were not commingled. They were separate, something miraculous. The blood represents the blood of the Eucharist and the water, the water of baptism. Christ suffered and died for me, for my sins. What have I ever done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.